Why is it this morning we have brought food and drink into the auditorium? For what purpose will we later on pass this food and drink out and eat it together? For those maybe not familiar with Christianity, it might seem like an odd thing to do. Certainly, it's not enough to satisfy any desires. For those of us that grew up in Christianity, we know the answer to that. It's fairly simple, and we would say that it's somewhat obvious. Many of, the, many of us have been doing this for most of our lives. And yet, in that familiarity, it can cause us to go through this service and go through the motions of eating that bread and drinking that juice without much thought. It reminds me of the time when I was in college and it was snowing out and I left my, where I was at and I drove about an hour or so home and I pulled into the garage and I turned off my car and I sat there and I all of a sudden realized that I had no recollection of the entire drive from when I had left until when I had come home. Why is that? Instinct just kind of kicks in. We know where we're going. We know what to do when we're driving. And so we just do it without thinking about it. So it's possible in that same way to go through this entire service and to realize that at the end, perhaps when you're at home this morning, to not even remember what happened this morning. The service, the singing, the scripture, and the preaching is all designed to do one thing. It's designed to focus our hearts and our minds upon the death of Christ. And as we do that, there's a variety of emotions that should be going through us as we go through this service and as we eat the bread and as we drink the juice. And those emotions might be amazement. They might be sorrow over our sin. They might be joy and celebration, realizing what Christ has done for us. And all of us should have thankfulness in our hearts for what God has done. At its basic core, what we are about to do is to remember the gospel. To remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And as we do that, we are celebrating the victory that Christ won over sin. As we think about the gospel, it's a simple truth. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. The gospel is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the gospel in a nutshell. And it's easy enough for a child to understand. And yet as we examine what the scriptures teach about the gospel, we realize that it is far more than just that simple truth. And that as we read the scriptures, we can dig into the amazing aspects of the gospel that sometimes are difficult to comprehend. That, that, that amazing truth of the gospel as we read it is an incredible demonstration of God's love for us. If you take your Bible and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to focus on just one verse this morning as we prepare for the Lord's table. 
Before we get to that one verse, I want to look at some of the previous verses that leads up to why Paul concludes chapter 5 in this manner. The gospel is a demonstration of God's love for us. And we see this as we look at our, our, our text this morning in verse 14, backing up a little bit. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul is saying here that this amazing demonstration of God's love is displayed in this way, that he died for us. Why was that love necessary? It was necessary because of what Paul describes in the next verses, uh, verses 16 through 22, but particularly he brings this out in verse 18. All this is from God. The gospel. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. This love was necessary because reconciliation was necessary. Reconciliation is necessary because there is enmity and hostility between man and God. And that reconciliation is necessary because of the sin that is there between men and God. Reconciliation then is what God does when he removes the enmity that occurred between us. That enmity enmity could be described in a number of different ways. We are rebels against God. In God's just holiness, he cannot abide the sin that each and every one of us commit. But God did something in that reconciliation. And it's described this way at the end of verse 19. At the beginning of verse 19. Here's the reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself in this way. He was doing it, not counting their trespasses against them. God was not counting our sin against us. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, how is that possible? We know the scriptures teach very clearly that God is a just and a holy God, one who does always what is right. And in his holiness and in his justness, he cannot overlook sin. And yet this text tells us that in his reconciliation, he was not counting their trespasses against them. How is that possible? That is where verse 21 comes into play. Paul goes on in the rest of those verses to talk about the fact that we as children of God have this ministry of reconciliation. Not that, that, not that we cause the reconciliation, but rather that we are ambassadors. We are declarers of the gospel of Jesus Christ that mankind can be reconciled to God. And he says this, Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How? How is that possible? What is the message? What are we to declare? Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. The truths that are explained in this verse are simple and yet profound. And as I've been studying this verse this week, it's just one verse, and yet the Lord has just opened up my heart to the truth and the reality of what these, this verse teaches. And I feel very inadequate this morning to try to lay out those truths before you. And I realize that no matter how well I craft my words, no matter how eloquent I speak, no matter how loud I may declare the truth, that those things are not going to do a work in your heart to let you see the truth of what this verse is. The only way that you are going to fully grasp these truths is for the Holy Spirit to take these verses and the truths contained therein and work in your heart. And that has been my prayer throughout this week. That in my inadequacy and in my weakness, the Holy Spirit would use his words in your heart. To what end? To prepare our hearts to eat those crackers and to drink the, bre- the juice with a heart and a mind that comprehends God's amazing love for us. So this verse declares this truth. This is the way that God removed the enmity and the hostility that existed between himself and man. Or we could, we could word it like this as a question. How can sinful man be reconciled to a holy God? And the answer is that there was an exchange that took place on the cross. And this verse describes the two aspects of of that exchange. The first one, the first half of the verse dealing with Christ, and the second half dealing with us as men and as sinners. The first part of the verse says this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Right off the bat, Paul lets us know that we were helpless and we were in need. Paul says, for our sake. Something needed to be done for us because we were in and of ourselves unable to reconcile ourselves to God. We were unable to remove this hostility that existed between us and God. And God, in his grace and in his kindness, reached out and did something for us. The reason why we were unable to do anything for ourselves is because of our condition. Elsewhere in Scripture, our condition before God is described this way. In Colossians 1.23, we were alienated from God. Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And in this condition... We are completely unable to do right before God. Sometimes man thinks that he can do right before God. And works-based religions are all built on the thought that man can do something in and of himself to make himself acceptable before God, to remove the hostility that is there. And so people will do their best to live lives that are are good and that are right. They will try to live lives that are kind and loving. They will try to do acts of service to the Lord, all with the thought that they are able in and of themselves to deliver themselves from their sin and to remove the hostility that exists 
But this thinking neglects the reality that the problem is not merely our outward actions that are seen or our inward thoughts that no one else sees, but our problem really is in, the, is in our heart. We are sinners by nature. By nature, we are rebels against God, and there is nothing that we can do. Just fixing the outside in our actions, just changing our thinking in our mind and the way that we act, does nothing to remove the sin that is rooted in our heart. And something needed to be done. We have set ourselves on a course that is directly against all that God desires, and we as sinners then deserve a just penalty for that sin. And Christ received the penalty for that sin. And that's what, that's, that's what that's, this first half of the verse is revealing to us. For our sake, he, we were in need and someone needed to step in. And the only person that could step in to intervene on our behalf is God. God did something. This is all a work of God, and as pastors and preaching to the book of Romans, that has become crystal clear to us as a church family. Salvation by grace is a work of God and of nothing else. Because of who God is and because of his character, he must judge sin. His holiness requires it, and his character demands it. And because of that, then, he is the only one that can do something for us. If we look back at verse 18, Paul says this, all of this, speaking of the transformation that takes place in a person's life, as the hostility is removed and they are reconciled to God, all of this takes, all of this is from God. It is from God that is doing this. Verse 19, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Jesus went to, the pl- the, went to the cross by the plan of God. For our sakes, God did something. This was not an afterthought. This was not God looked out on humanity, realized that there was a problem, and came up with a plan to remedy it. Rather, from the very beginning, it was God's plan to redeem mankind from sin because there was nothing mankind could do in and of himself. And God was the one that who, add, who had to act. Jonah 2.9 puts it this way. Salvation is from the Lord. Isaiah 53.10. It was the will of God to crush him. And I know we understand this truth and we teach this to our children that it was, it was God's plan for this to take place. But it's important for us to understand that this, this truth here, that For our sakes, he, it was God that did something. What did he do? He sent Jesus as the perfect sacrifice for sin. Second half of this this first part of the verse, for our sake, God did something. What did he do? He made him, speaking of Jesus, he made him who knew no sin, sorry, he he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. What, was the, what is the enmity between us and God? It's sin. 
But now someone comes on the scene that has no sin. So is there for any enmity between this person and God? And the answer is no, because this person has no sin. This person we know is Jesus. Jesus was without sin. As a man, he had no enmity with God. There was no unrighteousness in him. And we see this truth declared throughout Scripture. Jesus himself declared this. His disciples attested to it. And even when Jesus questioned his enemies and said, who of you can say something against me? Their mouths were silent. Jesus was sinless. There was no unrighteousness in him. But something also is taking place in this verse. This man, this Christ, who knew no sin, Paul says, was, uh, let me read it. He made him to be sin. What does that mean? God made Jesus, who was sinless, to be sin. Does that mean that he became a sinner? It can't mean that. It can't mean that Jesus became a sinner because Jesus is God and there is no sin in him. So what does it mean? It simply means this. It means that he was regarded as a sinner. He was treated as a sinner. All of the sins of the world were charged against Christ, though he had committed None. So God, as he is reconciling man to himself, did something. He sent Jesus, who was completely perfect, had no enmity with God, and was completely righteous. But when he hung on that cross, God treated him as a sinner. God treated him as sin. And the wrath and the fury of God against sin was placed upon Christ. We know that truth, but can we let it sink into us? Jesus was perfect. He did not deserve to be treated in that way. It's horrific to think that he was, he was punished, that God's wrath was poured upon him, for something that he did not do. And there's an additional layer here. It wasn't just, I don't think it's just that he didn't commit sin that makes this thought so horrific and unbelievable in our minds. It's the fact that he was God. He was the king. If there were other people that were out there and all of them had not sinned and we had to choose someone to bear the penalty for our sin, we would not pick Jesus. He's the king. He's the creator. It's that much of an, more of an affront to him for him to bear the sin in the position that he holds. And yet here's what happened. For our sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus bore the penalty for our sin. He bore it on himself. He became a sinner. The full judgment and wrath of the perfectly holy God was placed upon Jesus. 
And in that sense, Jesus was our substitute. And this is the first part of the exchange. Jesus took on himself my sin. He took on himself your sin. You deserved to endure the wrath of God. You deserved to justly suffer for your rejection and your rebellion against God. You deserved to be crushed for your iniquities. But Jesus did all of that for you. He endured the wrath of God. He endured the suffering on the cross. He was crushed for your iniquities. And even later on, as we put that bread into our mouths and we crush that between our teeth, that should be a reminder of what should have happened to us, but instead what was happened to Christ. Christ was crushed for our iniquities. And when that happened, God's wrath was satisfied. Jesus exchanged his righteousness and bore on ourselves, bore on himself, the sin of the world. He was treated as if he was a sinner. To what purpose? Well, we know that this is talking about reconciliation, that Jesus did this so that we could be made right with God. Paul goes on and he says this, so that. Here's the purpose. What Jesus did was extraordinary and incomprehensible but it was for a certain end and a specific purpose. This was the great exchange. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ was regarded as sin and treated as a sinner, though he himself had done no wrong. Why are we not gripped with this truth on a daily basis. It's because we do not understand the horrific nature of sin. We do not comprehend the vileness of our rebellion against God. We can simply view our sin as messing up. We can simply say to ourselves, everyone does it. Rather than seeing our sin as an affront to a just and a holy God. What happened then? The second part of the exchange is described in the second half of this verse. So that, what happens? We might receive the perfect righteousness of God. Paul reminds us again that, that central to this reconciliation is Christ, because he says this, so that in him, referring back to Jesus, Paul wants us to remember that we are helpless in and of ourselves, that we could do nothing, but it's all of Christ. And when we are in Christ, we can have the righteousness of God. And that by faith, when we trust Jesus as our Savior, the exchange can take place. We need a righteousness. We need a right standing before God, something that we don't have in and of ourselves, but something that we desperately need. Philippians 3.9 says that we don't have a righteousness of our own, but we receive this righteousness by faith. We are reminded, as we are helpless in our condition, that each person must look to Christ in faith and depend upon him for salvation. 
And that's why Paul describes us as believers, as ambassadors for Christ. We are to implore people to look to Jesus, to be reconciled to God, because it is through Jesus that they can have their sins forgiven and they can be, have the righteousness of God. So God views us as righteous because in Jesus, the entire law was fulfilled. He lived a completely perfect life and fulfilled everything that God had set forth in the law. That's hard for us to comprehend because we see our own sinfulness, we feel our own weakness, and we know that Jesus was a man, and we think, how is that possible? It's possible because he was God. He lived a perfect life and completely fulfilled the law of God. Here's that phrase and that we have to understand that we might become the righteousness of God. And we have to ask ourselves a question again. What does that mean? Does it mean this? When someone through faith trusts Christ, they become perfect and sinless. Is that what it means? And we say to ourselves, no. How do we know that? Well, number one, the scriptures teach it. But number two, we experience it on a daily basis. We experience our failings. We experience our weakness. We realize that we sin. So it cannot mean that we become perfectly righteous. The idea behind we might become the righteousness of God is the same idea as when Paul says that he became sin. He was regarded as sin. Jesus was. So our sins have been forgiven. They have not been held against us for this reason. God treats us as righteous. Why? Because Jesus was treated as a sinner. Jesus did not deserve that treatment, but he bore the wrath of God's sin on himself. We then receive the righteousness of God through Christ, and God sees us as righteous. God declares us righteous. The word that we typically use for this is justification. And this then is the second part of the exchange that we've been talking about. Jesus took the penalty of our sin on himself that we might, through Christ, take on the righteousness of God. So as we take the bread and the juice and we, we partake of that, that's what we are remembering. The body and blood of Christ, though his body was broken, his blood was shed for us. And in that, he bore the, the sin of the world. And we receive his righteousness and God views us in that way. We have to ask ourselves this question again. Why does this truth not grip our hearts more deeply? And I think the answer to that question is that we think too well of ourselves. We think we're actually pretty good. We see how we live our lives and are striving to do what is right. And we say, boy, I'm really working hard and doing a good job at trying to live according to God's plan, according to God's purposes. We do a second thing. We compare ourselves. We look at somebody else and we say, maybe not externally, 
But thoughts like this flee through our mind. We look at them and we say, hmm, I'm not as bad as he is. But when we have that erroneous view of ourselves, we lose the amazement of what Christ did for us and what we have in Christ. Right now, as believers, God sees us as righteous, even though we are sinners. And that righteousness that he sees will take us all the way through into eternity where someday we will be like him in sinless perfection. But right now, as sinners, God sees us as righteous. So rather than thinking that we're pretty good or rather than comparing ourselves to other, we need to compare ourselves against the pages of Scripture and against God himself and see that we have done nothing, there is nothing good in us that in any way, in any minute faction, deserves any righteousness that God gives us. So if you look at the title of my message this morning, it simply is The Exchange. The exchange between Christ taking our sin on himself and then us receiving his righteousness. He being treated as a sinner and us being treated as righteousness. I thought about a different title, perhaps, The Great Exchange, The Wonderful Exchange, but I realized that no matter what adjective I put in front of the word exchange, it fell far, far short of the concept that God is giving to us here. Perhaps the indescribable exchange would have been better. (laughs) This is a truth that must grip our hearts. And like I said at the beginning, this truth, this reality, we can try to understand it intellectually, but we need the Holy Spirit to grip our hearts with the reality of it. And so in just a few minutes, we are going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And may this truth allow us to stand in awe and be amazed at his love. And in response, let us lift our hearts with joy and thank him for this wonderful exchange. This truth, though, this reality must not just impact us as we participate and take uh, take the Lord's Supper together, but this needs to be with us as we go throughout our week. That this truth and this reality would grip us on a daily basis. So that, number one, we can thank him and praise him as he deserves. And number two, so we can live lives that are pleasing to him so that we can be ambassadors for Christ. We're going to sing his robes for mine Oh, wonderful exchange in preparation for the Lord's table this morning. And then Pastor Chris is going to lead us um, as we partake together. So I'm going to pray, and then Tim is going to come and lead us in this hymn. Our Father, we are thankful to you for this truth. Lord, we, we stand amazed at it. Help us to see the horrific nature of our sin and the amazing glory of your righteousness. Calm our hearts and our minds. I pray for each one of us as we prepare hearts, as we partake of the the, the Lord's table tonight, your table this morning, that we would just be thankful and do it with hearts of gratitude. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.